Hi, and welcome to The Network Effect, the show where each week we open up our little black book and bring you some of the best entrepreneurs, investors, and professionals from around the world who will share with you their experience and expertise in scaling companies into new markets. Whether you're a large multinational company working on complex projects or a fast-growing startup looking to expand into new markets for the first time, tapping into the support of others can be the difference between success and heading down a path of costly mistakes. We've built a business based on the network effect, where each new member to the network increases the value of the network for all members. And we've been able to use that network to help our clients to scale into every corner of the globe. And now we'd like you to be part of that network. So if collaborating with partners globally um, fits in with your strategy for your growth plans, then stay tuned and let's get connected. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of The Network Effect. I'm Zan Ali, this is Ben Blackburn and we're coming to you live from London as you can see from our window out here. Yeah, so we get the correct screen up. <laughs> there we go. We've got um, a very exciting episode for you today. So shortly we're going to be joined by Ronan Dunn, the Executive Vice President and Group CEO of Verizon Consumer. We'll be sitting down for a fireside chat with Asma. Um, and Verizon are actually pretty much the largest wireless communication service provider in the US ahead of the likes of T-Mobile. Um, and they have been a big player in the development of 5G. So this is something that Asma is going to be touching on in the interview. They'll be discussing leadership and strategy. But before we kind of go into the interview, we wanted to talk about 5G because there's been a lot of noise around it for the past few years. Um, a lot of people tend to think, oh, you've had 3G, 4G, now it's 5G. But actually, 5G is so much bigger and it it's potentially going to be really groundbreaking. So I yeah, think we, we went to... down quite a rabbit hole researching this one. Yeah. There we go. So yeah. we wanted to set the scene. So yeah. Ben, do you want to tell everybody, start with the basics, what, it, what exactly is 5G? Yeah, so 5G, as the name sort of gets to suggest straight off, is the fifth generation of wireless uh, technology. So obviously everyone at the moment uses 4G on their phone as they step out of their house and, and their home wire, um, wired connections. And it's going to be a massive step up in terms of um, connectivity, speed, and reliability. But there's also a lot of other implications that are really impressive with 5G. So one of the big ones is just the number of devices that can connect to the network without any sort of interruptions. So it's really a bit of an evolution on the technology itself. Um, it's quite a sort of a leapfrog ahead, I guess. And the potential impact is massive. I think we'll go into some of the cases in a minute. But yeah, very big jump in, in improvement in wireless capabilities. Yeah, I think not quite today, but it has the potential to be a hundred times quicker than 4G. And then as Ben mentioned, the share of volume of devices it can connect to, I think it's a million devices within a kilometer it can handle with no issues. Um, that's going to have a lot of potential. And I think to kind of add a bit more meat to the bones, we're going to talk about the impact it can have on business. Um, so in the audience, if you guys are listening in, I mean, you may or may not know much about 5G, but what do you, what do, how do you think it can be implemented in business? You know, we'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, suggestions. Also, feel free to introduce yourselves, get the community vibe going. Um, but in terms of business, society as a whole, I mean, what are you most excited about, Ben? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of obviously potential implications. I think I think one that might be a bit more directly affect me is the potential with AR and VR or augmented reality and virtual reality. We've already seen some use cases for this. I mean, Pokemon Go is the biggest go-to for AR, um, where they were obviously um, putting the Pokemon in in the real landscapes and so forth and making like a billion dollars a day or something did crazy. You catch <laughs> I did not. I did not. I jumped in on the initial phase, but um, what? wasn't a long-term user. Um, but one of the big problems with uh, VR and, and AR is just the computing power that's required. You've probably seen some of the original VR sets. You had to almost strap a computer to your back or be tethered to a computer with only a meter-long cable. So the potential for um, uh, for 5G is to be able to really increase that speed in which communication is sent. So you can actually have the computing power away from the device up in the cloud and just have real-time communication going back and forth. Um, there's a lot of implications for that, obviously, in the sort of gaming world, as we mentioned with, with Pokemon and so forth. But there's also real-world applications for this in, in other industries as well. Yeah, there's a lot of applications. So just to give some basic examples, um, if you're doing online shopping, let's say, you know, Nike have a great feature where you can customize your shoot, but you kind of do it on the screen and then hope for the best when it arrives. Whereas with AR, VR, you'll be able to actually see the shoe in front of you, design it, customize it, and then order it. Or um, if you're going shopping, you could do a virtual test drive. You can see a mall and without physically being there. We know with COVID and yeah. you know, trying to distance and things, you can still have that same experience of being in a mall, looking at things. And, you know, these all seem like distant things in the future, or they have done previously. And everybody always thought, okay, they sound good, but how will it work in practice? Well, something like 5G is really going to kind of make this all possible a lot sooner. Yeah, I think virtual reality has been around for a while, but really no one's adopted it because it is just quite a difficult area to jump into. And I think within the sort of retail space as well, the the sort of um, virtual test driving and so forth, you know, flick this, flick um, across and there'll be a Ferrari in front of you, flick across and there'll be an Audi there or something. They're, these are great cases for the consumer, but also the, the implications for the businesses is quite high. So... Um, some of the early use cases that are being done now are places like factories are setting up their own private 5G networks within their buildings. So there'll eventually be a global network that your phone is connected to, but um, independent businesses will also set up a 5G network the same way they set up wireless. Wi-Fi, and they'll be able to connect to all of the sort of um, the Internet of Things or the those sensors and so forth that are connected. So if you can imagine a, a warehouse factory or something, all of the machines probably have a sensor to tell you which parts are working and not working. All of that information has to go somewhere, and that's where the connectivity of the 5G network, as you said, a million devices in a kilometer. Once you have five um, five sensors on every bit of machinery in a factory, you've got a lot of information going on. But just to tie it back to your retail example as well, stores will probably be able to sort of track you through the store in real time and start to do things like offer you discounts if you look at something for too long and, and like implications. So the way you can use data in real time will be a lot uh, very effective um, as well. And just to throw to one more example, example of that. Um, Las Vegas is putting in a private 5G network to help enable its smart city projects. So they already have a number of sensors throughout the city, it might be weather sensors and so forth, but a good example is the traffic cameras they have on light poles, which are obviously constantly monitoring. 
with the connectivity of 5G, they'll be able to send those images to what is called an edge server, um, use AI to analyze the traffic um, and make real-time decisions on how they can open up the congestion or move the traffic more efficiently. And they, they estimate a 40% increase in efficiency through the city by activating a 5G. So if you think about that on the scale of a city, that's massive. You can basically duplicate that into retail shops into factories, monitoring how people and um, and you know automated robots and so forth move through it and and make those improvements. Yeah, there's just so many possibilities. And on the smart cities point as well with traffic, it kind of relates to the automotive industry, automotive industry. So we've already got driverless, self-driving cars and self-autonomous cars, but they haven't fully been applied yet on mass scale and one of the concerns a lot of people have is oh what if they malfunction what if this crashes data already shows that you know the likelihood of that is a lot less than a manual human driver but with 5g these cars future cars will now be able to communicate with each other so every car knows where the other one is it can completely avoid crashes so you know for car manufacturers they need to start thinking about how they can implement this technology for consumers and as a consumer it just makes your experience so much better um and another area that i found quite interesting is the implication this will have on healthcare so in terms of robot surgeon so to speak there's now the potential to have a lot of analysis conducted not by humans but by robots and for this to really function 5g that connection that connectability really enables it so let's say to give a uk example you know, i know we've got a global audience but you know if you want to go to the doctor there's a gp general practitioner you can go there or if it's an emergency you go to the emergency department in the hospital typically on average a gp could take one to two weeks to get an appointment you go to a and e depending on the severity you could be there for eight nine ten hours before somebody sees you whereas now or once 5g is kind of implemented properly people will be able to be analyzed by the robot the data will be collected in real time analyzed by AI, and then that data and the kind of initial diagnosis will be sent to a clinician, so you'll be seen immediately, and then the clinician will look at it and think, okay, how serious is this? We do need to bring this person in, or it can wait, or can we give some advice? And when you apply this to kind of maybe less developed countries, more rural areas, you know, this kind of gives access to people who don't necessarily have access to hospitals or don't have that, that level of infrastructure in their towns. If 5G can be implemented in their towns, they'll be able to do this analysis so much quicker. So there are a lot of kind of real-world benefits that this will hopefully have. The only question is, when will this be possible and will it be global? Yeah, well, I mean, at, at the moment, we obviously talked about the potential for the 5G to be 100 times uh, faster than the 4G network. I'm not sure anybody's actually been able to, to realize those 100x improvement. Um, from the from a 2019 um, data collection I saw, I think the US is ahead of everybody else, and I, I think Ronan is obviously the perfect person. They're, they're leading that, so maybe he'll, he'll be able to give us some updated numbers, but I think they were two, at the stage of 2.7 times faster, so near, nearly triple the speeds of, of the 4G network. Um, but I also saw that Australia, the 4G network is actually at the moment faster than the 5G, and I think that's just from an infrastructure point of view. Um, it is going to take a lot of work. The 5G can bounce off the 4G towers and, and so forth. It can use existing technology, but it needs a, a lot more sort of infrastructure added. Yeah. Um, but I, I think as we get there, it, it will be really sort of impressive. I know that just on your point with the automation and um, sorry, the access to medical care, 
um, beyond just automation and robots um, trying to take care of us. It can also provide people access to the specialists that they need as well. So by still using a robot, if you had a very complex heart condition and you were in the middle of nowhere in a hospital with nobody who knew how to deal with that surgery, you could use a robot connected to a 5G network, connected to a heart specialist from New York, from London, um, who knows exactly what they're doing. They could be plugged in via VR and see in real time exactly what's happening um, and basically remote complete that surgery. So really taking, I think, remote working to the next level. We might have doctors who don't need to leave their house uh, in the f sometime in the future, but that sort of access to care in rural areas can be a really important sort of application for it as well. Yeah, and just to add to that, whilst we're on the medical theme, um, so O2, which is a telecoms provider in the UK, um, they actually did a study and they said they've shown that within five years, by 2025, 26, um, 5G will actually help save one million hours of GP time and generate £1.3 billion of revenue. So this is just going to result in better quality care across the board. Yeah. Um, and on that global note, it is the kind of implementing the infrastructure. But I think a lot of the key players, I mean, we'll hear from Ronan a little bit later. If you look at Samsung, O2, and so on, a lot of the Nokia, a lot of the key players are saying that this is going to have a global impact. So the yeah. corporate VP of Samsung, I think in their mind, this only this isn't just for those countries that can build that infrastructure quickly. This has to be have global kind of utility for it to really be successful. Yeah, I think it's going to be quite important. I, I know that um, in a survey, I saw a lot of executives, what they're looking at with the 5G is not just using the same metrics of the current network to, um, to look at improvements. So yes, it's a lot faster and might be a bit more reliable, but the way that sort of um, very future looking, I think executives and companies are looking at it is 5G is the opportunity to bring new innovation. Some some people are already doing it and we're, we're aware of things like smart cities, but they'll also be, once it's available, people will start coming up with things. With, before 4G or without 4G, we wouldn't have Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat on our phones. And these are some of the biggest software companies in the world now. So once 5G is implemented, then, you know, what's going to come out? What's going to be the next big company? Uh, so, yeah, I guess the, the perfect man to sort of help answer this and, and woman, sorry, is with our interview with uh, Asma and Ronan. So I guess without further ado, we can uh, get to them. And, yeah, welcome, Asma and Ronan. And uh, welcome to our next for our today's episode for the Network Effect. I'm really pleased to see that everyone's joined today. So today I'm actually feeling really privileged and um, privileged to be hosting a guest that I actually personally respect and admire very much. I'm feeling honored that he's actually agreed to be on the show. So Ronan Dunn, this current executive VP, it's, a, it's quite a mouthful actually, the executive VP and group CEO of Verizon Consumer is joining us today. His career spanning three decades um, and covering all kinds of expertise and experience over the years, um, particularly with 5G technology. And if I could probably speak about him for hours on end and tell you all about his achievements, but obviously that wouldn't be right without, uh, so I'm looking forward to actually meeting him in person, virtually albeit. Um, so without further ado, I am going to introduce our special guest, the star of the show today, Ronan Dunn. 
Welcome, Roman. So, uh, hello, great to join you. Lovely to see you, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm really, really grateful. Um, so, Ronan, I know it's very early in the morning over there in the US for you, um, but we're really grateful that you've taken the time out to talk to us today. And I guess it, would be, it wouldn't be right for me not to kick off without asking you about 5G. I mean, I've learned a lot from the, the team that actually just talked about it and, and told us a lot of things about what could be in the future. But how is 5G, 5G going to impact all our lives? And I guess looking at it from your perspective. Um, and so, yeah, it would be interesting to hear more from you. So, uh, Asma, thank you for the opportunity. The first thing I would say to you is that whenever a new generation of technology comes up, we're always prone to saying, so what's the new new? The first thing to say about 5G is 5G will significantly enhance capabilities that we've already identified and use cases we already have. I'll give you a couple of practical examples. The use of mobile edge computing, which is the ability to push compute off an individual device to the edge of the network and rely on the low latency of the 5G network, means that robots that today cost, industrial robots that cost $100,000 can be built for $25,000 because you have significantly less hardware that needs to be put inside them. And those are already happening and being deployed in industrial uh, applications. The second thing is that uh, the ability of the 5G network to support 10 times as many connected devices is actually going to usher in for the first time, I think, the reality of AR, VR, and mixed reality. Because instead of a headset that weighs two kilos and requires you to be wired to something, we're literally talking about a clip on the side of designer sunglasses, which is giving you a genuinely augmented reality capability. And practically speaking, we're within probably 12 to 18 months of those products being commercially widely available. And the last one I would offer is the industrial IoT. Well, we've talked about it for a long time, but many of the use cases that we proved in 4G are expensive because sensor life because of battery life and sensor cost because the numbers that are being deployed are very high. But think of an IoT application where you reduce the cost of the sensor by 90% because you offload much of the compute and the battery requirement and you extend the useful life by 5 to 10x. All of a sudden, an application that might have justified putting 100 sensors into the marketplace now will support, the business case will support putting 10,000 sensors into the marketplace. So across all of those things, there's reason to be very excited about 5G making a lot of what we dreamt of real in a very short period of time. So is this correct that this is all available in the US but nowhere else in the world? No, so in fairness, um, things like mobile edge computing are very much in their infancy in relation to 5G. 5G capability is being deployed broadly across the world mostly in what's called the mid-band. So 3.5 gigahertz spectrum being the sweet spot in the middle there. So in the UK, you can already enjoy 5G on your handset. Some of the really peak performance elements are supported by millimeter wave, which is ultra high frequencies, which will support super low latency, but also massive capacity. Thinking about having uh, download speeds of 10 gigs on a mobile device, not 10 megs, 10 Wow. And Fascinating. That is, that is coming everywhere, but requires a couple of uh, instances of the standards to be upgraded and a thing called SA, standalone core, to be deployed in the 5G networks. But we're talking about a 12 to 18 month cycle 
to deliver commercial grade capabilities in the US and maybe 18 months behind that in Europe. Right. Okay. And so, Merlin, uh, I guess Verizon is leading the way with 5G technology and it seems to be the market leader. And there are so many networks, as we know, so much competition in the market. But how do you maintain your market share? I mean, I know personally in the past, from yeah, just generally, even speaking, when you're building a company or when you have a company, competition is always rife. And you always have to try and sort of challenge yourself in, in making sure that you're leading and you're ahead of everything. And I guess instead of worrying about the competition, I've always had this ethos that you've got to change the game. So what does Verizon do to stay ahead? Well, you and I have a similar philosophy. The, the trick as a leader is not to uh, simply do what's expected, but to do the unexpected. So essentially divorce the industry and rewrite the rules of the game. And my big passion is that actually we're not in the technology business at all. Because in my experience, most consumers don't buy tech. They buy the experience that tech, and tech enables. So I see us as an experience company. And so my focus over the last few years has really been turning the network in the service of the experiences and outcomes rather than perhaps traditionally Verizon was seen as an engineering led and network organization. And that has allowed us to uh, evolve to a situation now where much of what we do is and our definition of value is around quality, choice and experience in a differentiated way. We partner with Disney, Disney with, with Apple Music. We uh, partner with Google, we partner with Niantic, we partner with Fortnite. So what we're doing is creating a platform which is allowing the most creative people across a wide range of industries to have access to the best tech to create outcomes for customers. And we have a, a, a platform strategy. So I talked about us as the largest direct-to-consumer distributor of digital products and services in the US. That's a different way of describing a network carrier. We have a hundred million consumer accounts. That is a massive part of the marketplace. And so partnering with Disney or Discovery, you know, you now see in most markets around the world that Disney has a, a network partner. Disney had no intention of having network partners six months before it launched uh, Disney Plus. But we were able to persuade them that our channel to market was a fabulous compliment. And I'll give you a little anecdote as I may. When others were talking about, well, we can do a distribution deal, our network team actually went and reinforced um, the ability for our network to cope with the streaming associated with the launch of the network, net, the, 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 uh, the Disney Plus. So the CDN network and other parts of the network, which others wouldn't have done, but because we had an engineering bias, we were able to do it. On the day that Disney Plus launched in the US, it generated more traffic than the entire network international traffic between the country of Mexico and the country of the United States. <laughs> That's how much traffic was delivered just using Disney Plus. And guess what? It was better on Verizon because we built that capacity as well as building the distribution relationship. Fantastic. That's absolutely staggering to know. And so I guess the one thing that follows on from that, because a, a lot of young entrepreneurs who are leaders in their own company, CEOs, they'll be listening to this. And when you are an established organization like Verizon, and obviously you're quite a seasoned CEO, you know, you've been uh, experienced and, and you've had, uh, you know, a, a long history, three decades in this. And when we talk about market share and differentiating yourself and changing the rules so that you can actually be ahead of the game, 
this this is quite a challenging task for people. And I think a lot of people probably don't think about the competition in that way. They're possibly trying to innovate and change the products that they're doing. And I guess what you're talking about is channel partnerships and, and you know, get, coming along with other parties that can help elevate you as well. Can I possibly ask you just to sort of perhaps give a little bit of a, a insight or tips to our listeners about how they could differentiate themselves? Sure. And I think the first thing to realize is we're a service company, a subscriptions business, not a product yeah. business. So you might think of us as a product business, mm -hmm. but the product is actually an Apple or a Samsung handset. The service is the ability to use that to do a whole range of things. So depending on whether you're in a product or a service uh, um, organization, we determine you know, the approach that you need to take. So within a service organization, two things I would say is that it's not, by the nature of service, it's not a homogeneous market. So despite the fact that in theory, I'm selling connectivity to everybody, what we very much focus on is detailed segmentation. And, you know, classic marketing about segmentation. Segmentation is an acquisition tool. Value-based marketing is a retention tool. So once a customer joins us, then, we build a profile of that customer, which is based on their engagement with us and the services we offer. And so we attribute that and build a capability so that at every touch point that customer has with us, whether it's the network itself or a retail store or digital and online in the My Verizon app or elsewhere, that we show up how and where the customer expects because we use that rich insight, essentially becoming a data and AI information company to show up in a personal way. We know you and recognize you. You've been a customer for 10 years. We know what your choices are. We know you prefer, you know, Samsung over Apple or you prefer LG over whatever. So that is really important. So you break down what is a scale platform business and you deliver personalized service and experience. And that's really the key. We are the largest telecommunications company on the planet. We do have 100 million uh, consumers every day and uh, 130 million customers overall between consumer and consumer and business. But every one of them is an individual. And therefore, our ability to personalize is an essential ingredient of how we differentiate. Because some people love Netflix. Mm -hmm. Some people love Disney. Some people love other things. But everybody knows that they want a service they can rely on and the network they deserve. So we're trying to make sure that we go from the synergy of scale to the beauty of exquisite personal relationship. And I think for any business, whether it's service or product, if you at least have that mindset, you will be focused on what the customer truly values, not what you believe is important. Fantastic answer, Roman. And I just love the fact that you're saying you're the largest on the planet, so there's no one else that can compete with you, right? So we've got the master here, right here, telling us all about it. <laughs> well, the truth is, everybody competes with us every single day. I think the danger of being the biggest is you're also a target for everybody else. So you need to be fluid. No, absolutely. And so you've had a, a you know, great experience. You've been CEO of O2 in the UK and obviously now in the US, very different markets. I mean, what would you, how would you say, how different are these markets? And when, again, I'm just kind of reflecting and looking at young entrepreneurs, young leaders, um, when they're running their businesses, they start out at a particular jurisdiction, then look at global, because we've got a global audience and people looking at different markets, expanding in different areas, looking at competition. How, how astute do they have to be about this market entry and what are your learnings from being in Europe as compared to the US? 
So it's a it's a great question. And if I may, I'll, I'll maybe break it into three parts. Uh, the first is uh, product and market uh, fit. You would say telecom. Well, it's exactly the same. It's mobile phones. Everybody sells Apple. Everybody sells Samsung. Well, I'll give you two uh, distinctions in the in the market. Here is uh, the majority of people are on family plans, whereas in Europe, the majority of people buy individual lines. So the relationship between the network and the uh, customer is a one-to-one relationship. Whereas in the US, it's more like the relationship is with the household budget holder. So that has a significant difference in how you manage the relationship and how you engage with the user versus maybe the account holder. The second thing is that most of the networks in the US are predominantly providing unlimited uh, uh, service rather than metered plans. And the implication of that is that if you want to grow your business, once, once it's unlimited, you can't increase prices by putting up the unit price of calls or the unit price of a gig. So if you want to continue to grow, you need a new model. And so we've been able to create a tiered structure within Unlimited where we can add value layers to customers. So that's an important difference. The second thing I would say is a people difference. And then I'll go to access to market. So from a people point of view is culturally, the U.S. is actually quite different from from Europe. And I think uh, structure and uh, organization is a little more conservative and a little more traditional and hierarchical sometimes, particularly on the East Coast of the United States. So no one understands your audience from a talent point of view, from a people point of view. And certainly one of the biggest changes for me is that now the chairman and myself are two Europeans. And I, I think we have seen a lot of change inside Verizon, which has been driven not because Europe versus the US, but a different behavioral style it's more common and evolved in the European market than maybe was the case in North America five uh, five years ago. And the last piece is channel to market. So really understanding, is it direct, is it an indirect market? Uh, who do you partner with and how do you get to market? Because in most of the European market, if you want to address an audience of a few hundred million, you're going to be multi-jurisdictional. You're going to be 30, 40 uh, countries potentially. Here, it's a single market of 340 million uh, people but how you get to market, the channel, et cetera, can, can be different. And I'll give you one practical example just to make it relevant is people think of the U.S., you think of Amazon, but actually the proportion of the U.S. economy that's online is actually about only 60% of the equivalent in the, in the U.K. U.K. is a highly online as a proportion of GDP, much more so than it is in the U.S. So actually retail is more significant in the U.S. than it probably is in the UK market for uh, a service like telephones. That's really interesting because I have no idea about that. I've always as I imagined the US to be more advanced than the rest of the world. So that's news to me. I've learned something there today. And I guess the other thing that follows on when you're comparing markets is, is the US has all these states, right? So it's almost like I sometimes compare it to Europe, although now we've got Brexit and we're no longer part of Europe. But you know, when you look at the whole of the EU, um, you kind of think you still have different rules and regulations in terms of doing business. Is that very similar to what the US is like? Because you you expand your network city by city. Is there a reason behind that? I mean, what's, what's the thought behind that? Yeah, so as a probably the best uh, reference example is privacy rules. So the US oh, doesn't yes. have a federal privacy uh, uh, legislation. So actually it's state by state. And so we have had the equivalent of GDPR was introduced first in California. And so we have a state-by-state situation. So what we have is a bit like 
the uh, European model of uh, the stuff that's an EU directive at the top level, which is required to be complied with by every member state, and then the stuff that's the principle of subsidiarity that allows certain things to be determined on the ground. Uh, the US is not as clear-cut as what sits at federal level or what sits at state level. So there is the opportunity for states to essentially set precedent themselves. And California uh, privacy rules was an example of that. So we as a business decided that if California was introducing that legislation, it was easier for us as a business to comply with it nationwide rather than have one set of rules for privacy in California and a different set everywhere else. Since California introduced CCPA, we've now had four other states who've introduced mm -hmm. their own privacy rules. So I have to, as a business, be licensed in every single state to operate, but I then have to understand what's the other, the, do I go to the top of the compliance tree or I go to the minimum viable product so that I can sell what is essentially the same product in every single state, but, but sell it with one process and one system. So it's a more complex model in some respects than the European model, which might surprise some people. I mean, it's actually quite mind boggling because you know, you describe it in a very simplified way, but as a business and as a business leader, when you are facing a challenge like that, that you've got to expand your network and there are so many compliance issues, risk issues, regulatory issues that you've got to deal with, I don't think companies or businesses realize how complex that can be. So how would you advise a, a young leader to manage that kind of a process if they are so lots of companies are expanding into the US I mean I see lots of tech companies coming out of these large accelerators you know the Y combinators and, and the tech nations of this world they're going into first time into the US market they look at it as one big country they don't look at it as a, a state by state and so any tips that you can give people that are listening and uh, in terms of capturing obviously Verizon is the largest on the planet and so we are learning from the best and so any tips that you got to offer people in terms of that, that would be great. Yeah, I, I think it's in, in, and if I use a kind of a parallel, I think about AWS, you know, previously, if you were a startup and you decided you need to compute power, you had to go and buy some tin and set up database, data center, etc, etc. Now you just buy MIPS from, from AWS. I think the trick for any early stage business is to be really focused on the thing that differentiates you and make sure that you use compliance as an enabler to your innovation model rather than compliance to determine what you do. You should never let compliance get in the way of your innovation and differentiation. Otherwise, you go into the sea of sameness. So get good uh, advice and get it early. And then I think you can bridge that gap between what might be perceived complexity, but actually eliminating that complexity so that you can focus on the differentiation that's going to make you the next unicorn. Fantastic advice. Um, so, Ronan, what, does Verizon have any plans to expand outside of the US? So, it's a, it's a great question. We have on our B2B business, we actually serve customers, multinational corporates and domestic large corporates in you know, 100 markets around uh, around the world. Believe it or not, we have fiber in the ground in London and the, <laughs> and the home counties, and we serve many of the FTSE 100. But previously, the consumer business was a partnership, and the wireless business specifically was a partnership between Verizon and Vodafone, which some people may recall. So up until 2014, Vodafone actually owned more than 40% of Verizon communications. And as part of that deal, Vodafone did the global uh, footprint for wireless, and we focused on 
uh, the domestic market. But as I'll let you into a secret, with a population of 350 million, guess what? There's still more to go for in the, uh, in the market here in the US. So on the consumer side, we have no plans outside our borders. We are subject to regulatory approval, making an important acquisition, which should close in a month or two's time, which is uh, a track phone, which is a business with about 22 million uh, subscribers, which serves the, the value on the prepay market, which is not something that um, Verizon is very, uh, very big in. So my strategy is very much to take the synergies of platform and scale, and then to have a segmented multi-brand route to market so that we can serve all of the opportunities in the US market, not just the premium sector, using the benefit of having America's best network. Fantastic. And so also, I guess, what technology are you developing within the 5G network that is exciting you the most? That we can look so forward I, I to. Genuinely, I genuinely think that the most interesting uh, both concept and reality is the mobile edge computer. Mm-hmm. And if I if I try to break it down to its uh, its essence, it's really interesting for two reasons. The first thing is that um, even if you use AWS and you're using other, you know, the, the, the cloud, you're probably using either a national cloud or a metro cloud, which means that anything that you're doing is going probably a return path of in the US, maybe somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 miles is where your compute path is. Now it's doing it in nanoseconds. You know, that's that's really, really good. But some capabilities, uh, you know, a great corporate example is uh, the management of robots and industrial processes. If you've got an emergency on the line, the difference in, uh, you know, nanoseconds, milliseconds, I should say, of a change in response might be the difference between a million dollar machine being destroyed or a million dollar machine being stomped before it destroys itself when something happens in the supply chain. The ability on Corning as a partner of ours, which is um, uh, fiber or mass fiber uh, for, for communications. So one of the things that Corning can do is, and they're already using 5G in their uh, industrial applications is their ability to identify a break or uh, an issue in a strand of fiber and do it in milliseconds means that they can save what might otherwise be a mile of fiber that gets thrown out as part of a quality control process. So there are some very good examples industrial. Where I'm most excited from the consumer side is today we're kind of told that if you want the best service, you take one of these. So it's six by three, it has a battery, it weighs a bit, whatever. Imagine I can dematerialize the handset completely and still have the ability to have powerful computing and ultra fast speed and response time. That's what mobile edge computing does because I will actually put the data center and the cloud within maybe a hundred miles return path of you. I will bring the latency down by 40 or 50%. And if anyone's ever experienced any attempt at AR or VR, you will know that the difference in in the in the latency is the difference between inducing nausea, which is really common, and having a fabulously rich immersive experience that feels entirely natural. So we're on the cost of actually the technology catching up with the ambition in the AR, VR, mixed reality space. The other thing that I'm at sports mode that I'm really excited about is we have the capability now to capture 360 video and using some of this in places like the Super Bowl and others, where people inside the stadium have been able to enjoy 
enjoy eight camera angles of live streams on a single device. So the, the amount of bandwidth is needed. Would you go one step further and you stitch those multiple camera angles into a deep immersive 360? Imagine being at the Olympics today and saying, you know what, I'm going to stop the hockey and the women's GP team. And I'm going to swing around and I'm going to look at the goal from the other angle. I'm going to watch uh, uh, how, whether or not, you know, because of how we struggle or not. That sort of thing would create the opportunity for us to create, I mean, virtual season tickets for people who will sit in their homes and have a rich immersive experience with their two best friends watching the game beside them, even though they might be a thousand miles away, and having an experience which is as close to being in the state as makes all the difference. Imagine if we had that from time for the games. That's just absolutely fantastic. I mean, that is just so exciting. So how far are we away from that? I mean, is that imminent in the next few months, years? So I'm already seeing and enjoying with the partners that we have in the labs. I'm seeing 360 video. I'm seeing experiences of it. There was a use case shown in the video of 2019. You used it. The processing meant that you couldn't show these videos live. You had to show them 10 minutes later. It's the amount of compute that you need to stitch a 360 video is absolutely enormous. A lot more than sending a man to the moon or a billionaire to outer space as it is these days. But so we're, the technology is there. It's now the scaling of it and driving cost to a point that we can make it mass market. I would say within 18 months, we'll see the first real commercialization of these use cases. And I think within four or five years, I'll make you a bet that the major sports teams in the world will sell more virtual season tickets than they do physical season tickets. <laughs> Wow. I mean, I asked you what was exciting you most, but I could actually see that in your answer. You were just jumping out of your chair and, you know, it's obviously going to happen very soon. But I'm very much looking forward to that. So I guess this begs the next question, right? So what's after this IG? Oh, we've got to this stage. What's next? So there are people starting to think about 6G already. But to give you an idea, a, gen a next generation of technology normally takes about 10 to 12 years of development of the concept of the technology and then 10 years for deployment. So the great news is we've only got to about seven or eight years, seven or eight in the 5G cycle. So we have a couple more years of further enhancement of the capability of the tech. And that's what's called release 16, 17, the next releases of the standards. Um, and from a deployment point of view, while we have nationwide 5G networks here in the, uh, in the US and we start and Korea, places like that, we're starting building them out in Europe. I would say the sweet spot for this generation of the technology is there's probably still five years of you being simply blown away and amazed by 5G before, frankly, it's worth your while spending a nanosecond in of ultra low latency worrying about 6G. I think we're just touching uh, the edge of a hugely exciting period. And as if I may say one thing that's really important uh, to me, and I would say to all of the innovators and entrepreneurs who are listening is, technology needs to be inclusive at its core by design and by definition. One opportunity that I'm passionate about is that 5G becomes the most inclusive G ever, whether that's affordability, accessibility, whether it's digital confidence, whether it's building out our networks to places that we didn't otherwise serve. But then the technology that we deploy, you know, face recognition, a whole series of things we have to do better. We have to build technology that's in the service of humanity in a way that's genuinely inclusive and respectful. If we do that, 
Honestly, I think that our technology is not just exciting sideshows. It becomes fundamental to the society we build, to the communities we build, and to the economy we build. And that's how important I believe it is. And that's why this is the fourth industrial revolution. And we have a chance to make it the best ever. I love the way you think, Karen. I mean, this absolutely resonates with me. And these are all the things that I've always thought about. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's really fascinating to listen to you. And I guess it, it just kind of nicely takes me on to our next subject of leadership, really, because you're one of those leaders, I think, that is very, very inclusive. I mean, there are very few CEOs in the world that I think have the personality, the charisma, even the capability to be able to really get a grasp of what's going on on the ground. And we've seen the pandemic, we've seen COVID, it's been a global uh, impact around the world. And it's affected people, it's made people realize, you know, the human factor of who we all are, you know, how important people are, how important relationships are. And I think you really deliver on that front in abundance and being, and again, I go back to this thing that you're the master on the planet in terms of what you're doing at Horizon, but actually you've really mastered the art of being a great leader. And so there's a lot that people can learn from you. And I guess, you know, where I'm going with that is during the last 12 months, you must have experienced some serious challenges with the organisation. You're managing thousands and thousands of employees. Um, how has it been over the last 12 months? And, and, you know, how have you managed? So so thank you for the question. And, and look, I'm not just being uh, falsely modest. The truth is that... Um, Leadership is something that has to happen in every level of an organization. Sometimes, yes, the shadow of a leader and individual is identified, but it's the, it's the culture of an organization, which I always define as culture is what happens when people aren't looking. You need to create an environment in people in which people can sincerely be their authentic selves because the success of business, whether it's a tiny business or a big business is actually defined by how you bring the best out of people because whether it be creativity whether it be innovation whether it be you know job satisfaction it's that ability to bring the best out and so i've always been and i'll use my sports analogies uh, again is i've always been a team builder but you know the um british and irish lions are touring in south africa uh, at the moment and i'm a huge rugby fan and if i may use the parallel of rugby and um, rugby is for me, the epitome of a perfect game. Because when you're playing rugby in school, there's a skinny kid who's fast, who plays on the wing. There's a kid who's just going through that puberty thing and maybe is a little heavier than some others and whatever else. And they play up front, they play in the front row and everything in between. How inclusive is that? It's perfect. Every size, every shape, yeah. every you know, fast, slow, round, skinny, whatever. I actually think you have to take exactly the same approach in business is how can you be the best at what you want to do if you're not including the breadth of talent? And, you know, an insight that I learned many, many years ago, and it guides me to this day, is talent is widely and broadly distributed. It's only opportunity that isn't. So the day job of any leader, any founder, any entrepreneur is matching talent to opportunity. If you do that, you're going to be successful in whatever you do. The other thing I would say to any leader who's listening is understand what it is that you bring to the table in that context. So I'm very clear as my, I know what my job is. I'm chief cheerleader and chief storyteller. I know that's what I do and do maybe better than some others. I build the narrative that gets people excited that say they want to be part of this journey. And then I support them in being the success they deserve to be. And I know for me, what drives me and gives me energy is I'm a 15 year old curious kid. I'm fascinated by stuff, by things, by everything. And curiosity is the gateway 
to knowledge and to growth. Stop being curious, you stop growing. That's a, a fundamental as far as I'm concerned. So what I've found in the last 12 months is I've been true to myself. I've used that sense of cheerleader and storyteller to make sure that I've reached out to people who maybe I'd fallen out of touch with, former colleagues, partners, other things, to go and say to them is, how are you doing? Because I've been blessed with robust mental health all my life, but not everybody is uh, in that situation. So the ability to just reach out, to touch, and you know, we made a marketing faux pas at the beginning of the pandemic. We talked about social distancing. It's nothing of the sort. It's physical distancing that we require for health and well-being. But we actually want is social intimacy. We want to be together even when we have to be apart. And so I took that idea and I said, in our retail stores, how do we put in uh, touch, but it's digital touch rather than human touch in our relationships with our customers, our employees, but also my personal relationships? How do we reintroduce uh, social intimacy while at the same time respecting physical distance? And what we've learned is something that I knew all along is at the end of the day, it's a people business. You know, one of the questions that's just uh, it's come on in my mind right now, and just listening to you, Ronan, I mean, there's so much passion there, so much drive, so much energy. And I so often look at the younger generation, and I look, I mean, I've nurtured many, many young people in, over my time, over my career. But a lot of people say, and a lot of experiences are, that the younger generation don't have that drive and energy. They don't seem to have, they're not a generation that listens quite often as easily as perhaps past generations have. And also, it's a generation that has a lot of knowledge. You know, they're, they're the age of the internet, they seem to have a lot of power in terms of what they're doing. They're innovating all the time, building technologies. How do you then hone in on that talent and help them develop and become the leaders like you are? Because I think that's a fascinating example of the perfect you know, vision of a leader that actually looks at everything and encompasses everything. How do we make more leaders like that for tomorrow? So the first thing to say is the... Uh, Young people across the world are the most talented generation in history. Make no bones about it. So any of this snowflake BS is just utter nonsense. And it's people who aren't willing to, to change. I'll, I'll, I'll say that respectfully. But to put it in a frame so that people understand, our traditional model in business and in society has been human capital, which is inherently hierarchical. What we are in today is in an environment in which we're dealing with social capital. And essentially that is the idea that you form around a specific challenge or opportunity rather than you apply a hierarchy to that situation. In those uh, businesses that are smart enough to do that, what you find is you liberate that young, talented, uh, skilled individual who may well not want to play the hierarchical game, who may be frustrated by the fact that they come to a meeting and they know more about the topic, but because they're the fourth most senior person in the room, they're never asked a question. And one of the things I said early, Asma, when you asked me a question about leadership is, I fundamentally believe that leadership should happen at every level of an organization. And if you take the principle of, of uh, uh, social capital is, you then adopt that to say you form around an idea, an opportunity, a challenge, and within that, the person who is best placed to contribute is the person who takes the leadership, irrespective of whether they're the youngest, the oldest, the most senior, the least. When you do that, it's remarkable how you liberate the innate talent that's in a generation of incredibly bright and purposeful people. The other thing I would say, if I may, is that my generation has been guilty of um, a linear uh, um, and sequential approach to life. You do well first, and then as you get older, you think about doing good. 
And guess what? That's a hugely missed opportunity. We have a generation of people all over the world who understand that doing well and doing good are same other are two sides of exactly the same coin. And they're committed to doing good from day one as, me- as well as aspiring to do well. I think that creates a hugely powerful opportunity for us to partner two generations in a unique way in history to say the two generations of us are focused on change for good at exactly the same time. And one thing I'm involved in is a thing called One Young World. And if any of you who are listening haven't come across it, do search it out. I've just come back from Germany where we had our uh, annual summit. It's the most powerful, humbling and inspiring experience I have every year because there are so many people out there who are willing to commit themselves to fundamental, sustainable change. And guess what? We should be supporting them, not bitching about it. Wow. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm really disappointed that we're running out of time, but I could sit and talk to you all day. You've got some fascinating answers that you're giving and the subjects are just absolutely fantastic. But before we go, I do want to ask you a little bit about um, just, just two more questions, actually, if I may. If I, uh, so one is about the advice that you would give your younger self. Right. If you could take yourself back into your 20s, what advice would you give yourself about your career? Now, what are lessons have you learned? Yeah. So just to put things in in context, and sometimes when, look, I don't think of myself every day as being the CEO. I'm just the same bloke who loves rugby and does stuff in tech or whatever. But my first job was flipping hamburgers in McDonald's. And my attitude to that job is no different to the attitude of the job I have uh, today. So the two things I would say to anyone is the first thing is uh, take time to enjoy what you're doing. And if it's something that you're not enjoying doing, be purposeful about finding what it is that is going to fulfill you at every stage of your journey. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. I'm blessed to still have my parents at 92. So when you think, when you're when I was 22 or 23, I thought the world was gonna run out of time for me and I was chasing that hamster wheel so hard and so fast. Guess what? You know, 35 years on, I'm still as enthusiastic as ever, but I could have 30 years uh, ahead of me. So time is one thing. And the other thing is act with purpose. And I don't just mean a high purpose. I mean, is if you're in an environment, whatever you're doing needs to make a difference. Every day, every week, every month that you don't make a difference is a week or a month of your life that you will never, ever get back. And when I say make a difference, it's not climbing the career ladder. You'll define what make a difference means. You know, the fact that I spent three days, you know, in Germany last week is that's more important to me than potentially a board meeting at Verizon, because I know how important it is for me to both support and be re-energized by the passion I see in young people who are going to make a major difference in their societies. So be purposeful and make sure. And I, I joke in saying, if you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. Uh, This is what makes you a great leader, Ronan, I think. And I think this is probably one of the reasons why I I selected you to come on the show, because I just think everything that you talk about, the things that you do, the passion that you exude, it actually really resonates with a lot of people and uh, it actually teaches a lot of uh, experiences as well. And so as as a follow on from that, so, you know, social media, you're a social media enabler and you're running a campaign at the moment called for kindness. I mean, more important now than ever before. We see this and you talked about rugby, you compared it with sports, etc. earlier. And I guess, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about that kind uh, call for kindness and what that campaign involved and more organizations should actually be taking it up and, and backing it so that it becomes a global phenomenon? So, look, let me start by, you know, where the genesis of this and the insight is. Uh, you'll appreciate that uh, I have a lot of my colleagues who are on the front line of the pandemic. 
they're the people in a retail store who's asking somebody to put on a mask, to, to not come into the store until there's space, whatever those things are. And what we found was that the, uh, the pressure of the pandemic had diluted the humanity in a lot of the touch points, in a lot of the engagements. And, you know, I'll be honest, uh, employees in call centers and retail stores abused, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, very, very challenging. And also for the individuals themselves, you know, that in the case of the of the US, you're almost putting yourself in the place of the CDC, explaining to somebody why you do or don't have to do certain things. That's not a very reasonable expectation to burden tens of thousands of, of people in the front line to, to, to be the compliance officer on behalf of the state, you know, so it's a tough gig. So in the context of that, not just because our own staff were suffering, but because we saw this all across everywhere, was that we said, you know what? Here's an opportunity, and it goes back to something I said earlier, physical distance and social intimacy. Let's put the touch, the human touch, back in to things as we can. So we initiated this idea of a call for kindness, which allows us to, as it were, rally people to remind themselves of the humanity of everything that we do and to create an opportunity to recognize someone or something and actually put back in that, that thank you, the, the the kindness element and celebrate the fact that you know what despite all the challenges that we've had and the significant impact that it's had on a lot of people people have been incredible in their response to the challenging environment we've had i don't think it's unreasonable to say that for the younger generation this is their war experience i, I don't think it's too dramatic to describe it that way it's unprecedented it's global and it's very rare that we have a situation where literally everyone on a global basis is experiencing the same challenge at largely the same time now the impact of course is varied and different but the context is pretty consistent across the, uh, the space so we think call for kindness is the sort of thing that it can export exceptionally well from our business to others from our uh, country to others and let's let's think about that it's yes it's physical distance but let's bring back the human touch because 2022 i think will be the year of the human touch so let's build and let's get in early in 2021 with a call for kindness wow a highly commendable initiative and i have to you know uh, uh, applaud you for it so well done for coming up with that and i think it will be valued by many many generations and many people across the globe so um, sadly our interview has obviously is going to come to an end as much as i want to continue talking to you all day um, but it's been an absolute pleasure ronan i am so grateful for you to come on to the show for giving us the insights into verizon into your leadership skills and for everything else that you've done today so i'm very very grateful and thank you and i'm wishing you a wonderful week ahead and I hope that we can continue this conversation and I get the opportunity to meet you in person so thank sure. you very much what I would just say as we close is to anyone who's uh, anything that was interesting on this is don't be shy if you want to reach out on LinkedIn or elsewhere if there's anything that I can share or help I'm always always happy to do as it's been a real pleasure thank you. and I can vouch for that because Roland is so approachable and you've set the benchmark because I don't know how it can get better than this so thank you Thank you very much. And thank you everyone for watching and participating and we hope to see you again next week. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>